Hello and welcome to the Garland Pepper Show. Today my guest is Brent Pace. Brent and I were high school friends. Uh, he lives in Salt Lake City now. He is a counselor for people with trauma in the LGBTQ community in Salt Lake City. Uh, we talk about a lot of things. His family uh, coming out gay and the challenges of being Mormon and being gay. And good talk. Enjoy. Well, hello, Brent. Hi there. How Jerry. are you today? How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Well, welcome to the Garland Pepper Show. Well, I'm so pleased to be here. I can't tell you. It's, uh, it's an honor. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. for Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is my friend Brent Pace. When I was 16, I ran away from home a few times, and finally they sent me to Utah to live with a family of Mormons who were really, really good people, and I went to Provo High School. And uh, I was kind of a bad kid in a really good school, you know, think flounder in Harvard. And um, Brent was a friend of mine. I don't know which class we met in, but there was a drama thing coming up in the spring, and it was for a Shakespeare, as you like it. And Brent challenged me to do that. And uh, I was a library kid because I was catching up from all the years of fucking off before I went to Provo. So I was always in the library and at football practice. And yeah, I I didn't have a winter sport. And this is Brent. And we became friends. Uh, Brent, born in Provo, right? Well, uh, born in Colorado, actually. Oh, really? Okay, let's hear the story. Well, um, my family had moved around a little bit. My father uh, is, uh, my father's still alive, actually. He's 90 years old. Mm. And uh, he directed the Institute of Religion at the school in Fort Collins, Colorado. And so for the year that he was there, I was born into a Mormon family. I was the fifth child, three older sisters and an older brother. And then shortly after that, we moved and we ended up in Palo Alto. My dad directed the Institute at Stanford for a year or two. And after that, I was still just a little kid by then. We moved to Utah to Orem and then eventually to Provo and into the house where my parents still live all these years later, if you can imagine Mm. that. I love that spot right up, right up next to the Canyon. Yes. I grew up in that Canyon rock Canyon Mm -hmm. and it was right across the street from our house. And it was right below uh, the big Y way below. Whoa. Yes, that's right. That's right, right below the big Y that stands for B- for Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. And I, that's a beautiful town. Provo, Utah is beautiful. Yes, it, well, it, it's even become more beautiful since they uh, dismantled the uh, steel plant that was there in Geneva. Oh, good. Yeah, so you get some beautiful skies and maybe not as 
radiant uh, sunset in the evening as you're used to with the smog. <laughs> right. Right. I ate so it much cat. I I ate so much catfish out of that lake. I bet you USS Steel could owes me for my Alzheimer's. <laughs> there's there's some heavy metals in that lake, man. Yes, there are. Uh, I'm not sure I'd eat anything out of that lake. <laughs> That's what we ate. We'd go down and we'd catch a whole mess of them. By a whole mess, we'd just pull throw in and pull it out. Throw it in, pull it out. I mean, it was like one catfish after another. And you'd 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 be frying up catfish until you were just in cornbread and frying it up, and you would just be eating until you were done. Well, now I was never invited to one of those. That was when we lived in. Uh, that's when we lived in um, Eureka. We would go oh. to the, but we were on the other side of the lake, which you know might help. Yeah, we that would have yeah. helped a lot. Mm-hmm. So we were on that side of the lake. So we would just uh, leave Eureka, and and go down to the. What is that? South side of the lake? Yes. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be the south side of the lake. So we'd go in there to one of those little inlets because they have like these little fingers. And we'd uh, we'd fish. And you could catch catfish, catfish, catfish. You went too far out, you'd catch carp. Yep. That sounds like the beloved Utah Lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that lake's a trip when it's windy. Oh, uh, very dangerous. Oh, <clears throat> it's not very deep. No, but it, uh, there's always an accident out there. And I, it's funny you bring that up. Um, I'll never forget the star uh, tennis player. I, uh, I think I was about a freshman and he was a senior. Uh-huh. And on graduation night, they went out there on a boat and they got stuck and he decided to swim in. And he was a great swimmer, but he never made it. <clears throat> Who was that? Um, last name was Pierce. I forget his first name. And he, uh, saddest funeral I ever went to. And his girlfriend wanted to play his favorite song, which was Stairway to Heaven. Oh, geez. Yeah. In, in a Mormon community. Which in is a kind Mormon of, community. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it always ended our church dances, though. Yeah. 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 So we've not seen each other in, oh, maybe 30 years. Last time I, yeah, it's got to be 30 because I wasn't with Tammy. We were together, but um, we had not married yet. Um, And we were driving through Utah to find my father, which I still haven't figured out yet, even with the 23andMe stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we stopped by. to say hey to you and you were living in the french house and you were a tutor yeah i was yeah i was the head resident at the french house believe it or not mm-hmm. it was uh it was a house where once you walked th- across the threshold you had to speak french it was an immersion program for for students at byu who wanted to learn french well, that's cool and yeah. they always have they always have good language speakers to pick from so that's a pretty tough gig to get imagine every week there's a new french kid coming off the old missionary platform <laughs> there was uh it was a it was a good gig though it was room and board and it was always uh good to keep your french up and uh, that was an interesting part of my life living at byu and 
teaching classes, teaching French classes. You always had, had a romantic a... sense about France, I remember, in high school. Oh, um, yeah. Did it live up to it? I've always wondered how, you know, people who have this super hyper-romantic sense of something when they go there, how it feels. You know, it's... It, it, when I when I got called on my mission, because that's what you do when you turn 19, it was yep. not an easy decision on my part. In fact, I told my parents I wouldn't go under any circumstances. And they were very smart and said, oh, that's fine. We didn't. We, we're OK with that. We'll, we'll just support you in whatever you want to do. And then they mm-hmm. immediately started praying and fasting and putting my name on. <laughs> my name in the temple and making sure that I was going to go. And, and something really funny happened, which was that all my, all my friends, all the, all the kids I grew up with had gone on missions. And so I was all uh-huh. by myself and I had already been kicked out of BYU one time um, because they didn't care for gay folks there. And mm-hmm. I never lied to him. If they asked me straight out, if I was gay, I told them yes. And so after my first semester there as a freshman, I got kicked out. And I ended up moving up to Ogden, which is a city north of Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. I lived with my sister and her husband for a year. And that was about the time I needed to decide whether to go on a mission. And I I decided to go after my parents had such an underwhelming response. I expected them to lose it on me. Mm -hmm. And so I did everything I was supposed to do and almost didn't get to go because I'd been such a bad boy that eventually they said that they would let me go. And Did you have to do remedial training? I did. So that was the contingency of letting you go on a mission after having already been outing, uh, have, after, after already having outed yourself. Is that correct? That is correct. That wow. is correct. So eventually I get this, uh, I get this calling. You, let me ask you something though. Yeah. As I recall, you actually you actually wanted to be healed of the gay. You wanted to be healed of the gay because everything that you believed in in your life it was built around family and church, and you you were afraid of losing all of that. I was. I was terrified. In fact, if I back up a little bit to mm-hmm. when I was about the age I met you, mm-hmm. I came out to um, a couple of people, and I became just absolutely the most dysphoric and depressed and angst ridden teenager you ever met and started to, uh, as we say, as therapists self-medicate with alcohol. And it was, it was really a no win situation. I mean, either I sublimated all that and made peace with my family and stayed miserable my whole life or I came out and moved to San Francisco and New York. That was basically what you did back then. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't see either one of those as really being an option for me. And so I was caught in the middle of that. And so I finally went to a bishop when I was about 17. And I told him what was going on and that I had actually attempted suicide. And he mm-hmm. said, well, this is really scary. I think we need to involve family services which back then was called LDS social services or the SS uh-huh. as we called them. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. 
so they send a social worker up and I'll never forget. Um, he sat there and talked to me and I thought, wow, things are going to get better. This is, this is the answer. I had hope for the first time in a long time. And I went back to see him the next week. And the next thing I know, he's telling me, you know what? There's not really anything I can do to help you. Making a martini, are you? Look at that. My wife's making a martini. I'm sorry to interrupt, but well, I had to right. bring that you into could... the conversation because we're going to hear the shaking real soon. <laughs> we'll send one my direction. <laughs> uh, Actually, I don't drink yeah. much, but. You did. Was I... that your drink? Oh, it was for a while, sure. Yeah. Anything wet. No. Just alcohol in general. Just alcohol in general. Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've never felt its grasp more than than the than in the last couple of months. Oh, really? Yeah, in terms of just like just with the quarantine, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's kind of how I split my day from morning to evening, I guess. You know, that makes sense. There's sober time and drunk time. Yeah, and then it's but it doesn't mean anything if you're drinking by yourself. It's just like. Everything kind of gets slower and you get tired and you go to bed. <laughs> Shoot, it seemed so much more romantic back when I used to do it. No, that's exactly what it is. It's just, yeah, you slow get tired. Now, social drinking, um, I've done way too much of that, but it's something I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, but so that's that's been a hard one to get over, but this actually is harder. The social drinking, I'll be like, ah, oh, I did too much. And then I'll be like done for four or five days. But this, I'm like, oh, I think I want a beer tonight. Yeah. That makes sense. At least to, at least to two or three typically. Sometimes four. It's all about when you start for me. I mean, if I start too early, it just messes up your day anyways. You don't get nothing done. Yeah. Don't get nothing done. You like that? Double negative? Don't get nothing done. Mm-hmm. It's like a rock and roll song. <laughs> you can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> so let's get back to your story. Um, and if you hear shaking in the background, just, you know, make up a song in your head. <laughs> so where was I? Oh. So I'm sitting in this. You you were kind of a. I'm in this bishop's office, right? And it's the second time mm-hmm. that I've seen the social worker, and he says, "There's nothing I can do to help you. We've done research on this, and the reason you have these gay feelings is because you're not close enough with your father. He hasn't bonded with you adequately. And now, you have to realize, by this time, my father has sired twelve children, mm-hmm. and." 10 of them are girls. So I have 10 sisters, one brother. Um, and they thought I wasn't going to be gay. I just, I don't know. It's just a hard one for me to figure out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like to say that I'm gay and my brother is trisexual. Yeah. Yeah. He'll try anything sexual. So. Oh, he will. No. Uh, if he hears this, he'll probably kill me for saying that. But. Uh, that's a lot of people are that yeah. way. I, I don't have any problems with it. I, I just wonder if he'll enjoy being characterized that way. Um, the they probably get mad at you. Yeah. Well, he's been mad at me for 15 years. So, 
Well, then I guess we're just going to add a little kindling to keep the fire going. <laughs> so this guy says to me, you, you need to bond better with your dad, and your dad needs to come here to this office tonight, and we're going to talk to him about that. And I said, oh, no, mm-hmm. no, no. I'm not ready to talk to my dad about this. This is like... So by this time, my father has become somewhat of a local celebrity. He fills these huge mm-hmm. classes of 500 seats with you know, these doting students at BYU, Brigham Young University. Yeah. And he is the stake president, which is above a bishop, right? And so the bishop knows where he is. He's at the stake president meeting that night. And they call him up on the phone and they say, you need to come up here right now. Your son's in crisis. So, but I had told them, I said, I'm not going to talk to him about this. This is not the time. I refuse to do this. I, 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 am, I am just not prepared. And this is what happens. And this is a defining moment in my life. The social worker turns to the bishop and says, Bishop, how about we have a church court and discuss excommunication? And I look at him and I look at the bishop. And I, I didn't know at the time that they couldn't do that. But the threat felt real. And I started to cry because my, I just saw my whole life just like dissolving in front of me. And your belief system, your soul. Everything. You truly believed it was your soul at Absolutely. that point. Absolutely. Yeah. And I imagined my father's face when he heard, you know, when, when he was going to hear what I was doing, what I was, you know, who I was, um, that I was going to be laid bare. Sure enough, he comes up. Well, I still can't talk when he walks in the office. I'm still crying. And he's just worried sick. He's like, what's going on with my kid? And the the social worker turns to him and says, your son wanted me to tell you that he has these feelings for other men. And we know that the primary reason for this is that you haven't bonded adequately with your son. And Bishop doesn't say anything. He goes on and says a few more things. I'm still crying. Eventually the whole thing ends, thank God. And I walk out with my dad and we're looking and the the church house is across the street from our house. So we're looking at our house. And by then I've kind of calmed down a little bit. And he says, whatever you do, don't tell your mother about this because it will kill her. And I have this vision in my head of me saying mom i'm gay and she falls over flat on her face dead and we're all at the funeral and everybody's saying well you know brent told her he was gay and it killed her (laughs) (laughs) but that's the image that came to your head absolutely oh my god God. Uh, well little did i know you know a mother's intuition is pretty strong i'm sure she knew i was gay long before that (laughs) Yeah. So that was kind of the outing um, experience. People asked me when I came out and I said, well, I never really came out to anybody <laughs> was, uh, but my bishop. And then he outed me. Uh, very unfortunate circumstances. Wow. Wow. It just, uh, the judgment in that and, and kind of the aggression. 
you know, the bishop to call the stake president out of a stake president meeting so that they can assail this child with fear. Yeah. Well, and that fear lasted a long time. Yeah. And and you're right that I didn't want to be gay. I mean, there was a part of me that just wanted so desperately to be like everybody else. But, yeah, it was the 80s, man. Nobody wanted to be gay. That was. I mean, it was scary. It was was I mean, not in high school anyways. It was fucking scary. What was that kid's name? Jim, James, James, James Talaferro had a yeah. little brother, had an older brother named Tony Talaferro. Is that who you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Tony was as queer as a $3 bill. I mean, this kid, oh my God, he'd walk down the hall and it'd just be like, it just came oh. off of him. I mean, he, well, he dressed in like bright orange and like he, he dressed pure disco. Oh, absolutely. Real bright. Absolutely. Like boy George Bright. And he had a shirt. He had a t shirt that said, I'm latent. <laughs> God, that kid was funny. That's a great that's a great t shirt. Yeah. yeah, and his brother was a jock. His younger brother was a he jock. Was. He was on the football team. And I I remember Tony being harassed by some kids at one point. And James just went yep. after him and they were like dude and from then on you know it's almost like he gave his brother a uh, a card and he could just be as gay as he wanted because he he got even more flamboyant after yep, that he didn't did. he? that's hilarious once his brother stepped into the game and the and the whole story because it didn't take much in provo i mean the story's told throughout the halls and by you know 20 minutes that's later that's right and that's probably every high school. Tony became a friend of mine because we were in a creative writing class together. And and when he told me he was gay, I didn't believe him. Because I know this is going to be hard to understand, but I had never put the word gay to me. I, it had never attached itself to me. Like I, I had these feelings, I had these arousals, I had these attractions, but I'd never put the word gay and my name in the same sentence. And so here's Tony one day talking to this girl named Patty Page. And he says, and then I was kissing him and he bit my lip and I said, that hurts. He says, what's the matter? Aren't you into pain? And I said, no. And the guy said, why? And he said, because it hurts. And I was just like, what is going on, Tony? You were kissing a guy? He goes, yeah, BYU student. I said, what? You're gay? And he said, oh, my God, where have you been? Like, what rock did you just <laughs> crawl out from? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he was. Yeah, that, Paige, Patty Page. Was that the girl with the triangle yes. hair? <laughs> yes. it, was. it was, right? Oh, yeah. I had like a, I don't know, I had like a brain heart on for her. I mean, she, she just like tre- intrigued me and I wanted to make out with her. Yeah, she might have done it. You should have. She might have. I didn't even. I should have. Yeah. I think she was. Uh, I think she batted for both teams. Yeah. So I, she is. Yeah. She is very kind of. Whatever. Yeah. So, all that to say that you know, high school for me, interestingly, uh, you know, I look back on it. It was. It was a lot of. Uh, there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of uh, 
avoidance. You know, there I, I missed a lot of classes, especially that last year. But ironically, I would go to classes much like you would go to, you know, to go to a college class. I would go and take the tests. And we got right up to graduation. <laughs> and I had taken enough AP classes to graduate with high honors. Um, but I wasn't going to graduate because my physiology teacher said, you haven't come to class. You passed the test, but you haven't come to class. So I'm not going to let you graduate. And wow. at the same time, because I was in drama, I had tried out for the, one of the, you know, one of the talks at graduation. And I, and I had been awarded this great honor to speak at graduation. They still do it at the Marriott yeah. Center. Wow. So here I was in this terrible situation where I have this meeting with the principal, all the all the counselors and the teacher, the professor, the teacher of uh, physiology. They're all very upset with me because the the <laughs> it's not like today where you could change the uh, the printed uh, um, you know the <laughs> you couldn't take my name off the uh the dossier it was printed it was already the program and that's what i was trying to figure out yeah yeah the program yeah the dossier <laughs> we're all trying right. to find the words so anyway long story short he lets me do some work and i graduate and i give some talk and all is well again in the world and my mother doesn't cry and and then i go to byu and my five best friends at the time <laughs> Um, all went to Harvard, and I just felt like oh, I felt like true. such an idiot. I mean, I was just this kid who didn't know anything, you know. Because I was, what was I doing? I was going to BYU, and mm-hmm. you know, one of them was Martha Beck, um, who has made a name for herself, and yeah, Nibley. Martha Nibley Beck. She was, uh, she was a big brain, and. Her husband yeah, John she was. Beck. She's really. I loved. I loved her drawing. Her lines on her drawing yes. were amazing. And she was a great poet, mm-hmm. and you know, and she was the one who could do Shakespeare. Someone would forget to like come in. They'd forget their cue, and she could ad lib, and she could ad lib yeah. in iambic pentameter, and she could rhyme. This woman was yes. out of control. I mean, just so brilliant. Well, I acted against. I mean, she was yes, she, she was, was my Rosalind. But I, uh, I truly was Orlando in that. I didn't understand shit. I mean, I was just doing it. I, I, I did memorize my words, and I dropped lines once. And Martha did come in with a way of telling me my lines in iambic pentameter in character because her character would have done that. And it was very helpful. And my embarrassment almost shut my brain down though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when you, when all of a sudden you're, there's people, there's no words and you're freaking panicking and that'll shut your brain down. And it's scary. And she, she brought me back even though she hated me at some level because she thought probably you should have got the part. Oh, I don't know about that. She hated a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) 
She was an yeah. equal opportunity hater. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she actually hated me, but I, I don't I don't think I amused her in any way. <laughs> and that that was it. She's like, Oh, get away, you do not amuse me. I need amusement in my life. Something interesting, please. <clears throat> that that would be an interesting story to tell someday, that the story of her family, you know, and I've stayed friends with her little sister, Zina. Yeah. She's a sweetheart. I love Zina. Oh, she's so great. Yeah. She's, did she stay no, with acting? she didn't. Um, she did end up being a professor at BYU, and so did her husband, who was on his mission with me. And Oh, it's also incestuous. But um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. She's she's a she's a professor. Zina was. She's she's retired now. That's yeah. That's what's so crazy is all these people retiring she's... around me, and I'm like, oh, well, that'll happen in 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, I got a, another 10, but I just lost my job after 20. What? 21 years. You mean with the lottery? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. They had to. They had to. They had to cut 60 in one oh. day. And. Yep, and uh, my department had to get rid of one. I was the highest tier PERS person. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I don't know what their criteria was. It's not published. I'm sure that they have it, but they're not letting anybody know. But they got rid of a lot of old wood. Oh, jeez. You know? I don't mm-hmm. like that. So I'm 58. I have a training career that's behind me that was not super hard and it was pretty good Um, and I was really good at it so I have those skills but I don't know really how to market them uh, now and and I'm going to start looking into things but you know it's a weird thing I was so my wife's already done her 30 years um, with state accident Mm -hmm. insurance and um, she was wanting to retire, but she's younger than me. So she'd be retiring in her fifties and I would be working until I was 65. Right. You know, so that we could maintain insurance, get the house completely paid off, throw extra in the coffers of savings, you know, kind of really get ourselves set up for a nice retirement, a nice end of life. And now I'm resetting. This is part of my reset. This is a side gig at this point because it doesn't make any money. But if I build a big enough audience over time, it will. And uh, so that's my goal is to build an audience at this point. Um, Yeah, I want to get to 10,000. I'm uh, second month in. I'm coming around my first 800, uh, 800 and something right now. it says total listens, but I don't know that that's true. I'm sure there's a lot of starts and stops. Wow. <sighs> yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. But life has thrown me curveballs my whole life. Transition has been something I've had to do a lot of, but not so much of in the last while. 
so I'm not sure how I'm going to transition now. I'm not as practiced at it as I used to be. Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, I had been working for eight years as uh, the clinical director at a torture treatment program here in Salt Lake. Mm. And a lot of people don't know that Salt Lake was one of the first places to, or Utah was one of the first places to um, start accepting refugees under a program that um, resettled them through a variety of different um, resettlement agencies. But we have a fair number of refugees in Utah. And we were, we were, we were receiving about 1,100 a year before um, some guy, I can't remember his name, but he's in the White House now. Um, kind of cut that down a little bit. But it was, it was a great job. And um, it was hard. And I, I, I kind of paid for it a little bit after about four years, I, you know, developed some secondary traumatic stress. It was pretty hard on me. Yeah. Well, you end up in the same prison. That's a nice you? way of saying it. <laughs> at some level. Absolutely. And at about that point, the medical director, who's a friend of mine, is um, just an amazing woman. This, um, her name's Mara Rabin. She came to me and said, you know, Brent, you've been here about four years and you just don't have that that look in your eye, that, that lilt in your step. And I think you have secondary traumatic stress and I want you to go to this training through the center for mind body medicine. And I said, Oh, that's okay. I think I can get my essential oils somewhere else. And she said, (laughs) (laughs) pompous twit. (laughs) She said, you're an idiot. Go to the training. It's run by my mentor from medical school. You'll like it. And I did. I really liked it. And it was a lot of um, meditative practice. It was mindful breathing. There's a variety of different skills we learned. And then I went back and became a practitioner. And and it allowed me to continue to work there for another four years. But a new director came on and she and I did not see eye to eye. Um, she was not friendly. She was not close to the clients at all. She never you know mingled with anybody like the past director and and I kind of saw the writing on the wall and after about a year of this I just was like I can't do this anymore I was just (laughs) this wasn't my thing wasn't my jam I guess and so I had started working in private practice a little bit just out of my home and so that's what I do now is I do that full time um I see clients. So mindfulness and getting people through trauma. So are there methods that you're using? Are there certain methods that I've heard of that are working now? Um, With trauma? They have, yeah, there's acronyms. So, you know, mindfulness-based CBT is kind of the go-to, but yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy. But it's, but it, that's not probably really my, I, I wouldn't say that's my forte. I'm, I'm, I'm more of an existentialist therapist. Um, I'm really interested in what mm-hmm. people 
are doing to find meaning in their life and to answer those really difficult questions that all of us are faced with when we are at places of difficulty or change or transition or or in the midst of a pandemic or as we watch the fabric of democracy um, disintegrate in front of our eyes or whatever it is that's happening in the world right now. And it's uh, it's a mixture of that and a lot of, just a lot of mindfulness work and what I call narrative therapy, which is um, using your trauma narrative to actually get better and not seeing trauma as a life sentence, but rather as a motor for change. And that's, those are not my words, by the way. That's um, Peter Levine who talks about that, who is a writer. Uh, he wrote a great book called Waking the Tiger mm-hmm. about working with trauma survivors. And it's, it's something I really enjoy. And the, the majority of clients I have right now are LGBTQ and for mm-hmm. a while, I was the clinical director at a place called Encircle, which is a, a resource center for LGBTQ youth here in Utah, which is, I think, really needed. And um, I continue to work with the organization that was providing therapy for that house, and and that's that's exciting mm-hmm. because it's it, you know it's working with individuals that wouldn't be able to afford therapy otherwise. So LGBTQ kids in Salt Lake City, um, they're, so Salt Lake, we could go back to your excommunication situation and that's Salt Lake City. Some of these kids grew up Mormon. Yeah. Absolutely. And so there's all of that that's happened to them. That's a traumatic thing to be shunned by your family and your religion. In fact, some very recent research um, was done by a gentleman in Georgia, but he, he was studying gay Mormons and he looked at a control group of Mormons that were not gay. And then, a group of gay Mormons and was looking at the percentage of those individuals in both groups who met criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And in gay Mormons, it's um, over 75%. And in the general population, Mm -hmm. it's very low. It's less than 10%. So something's happening. And what I believe is that, you know, sometimes when we talk about PTSD, we think there's this one activating event. You know, you're a child and you go through this terribly traumatic event and then you have PTSD or you go to, you go to war and you come back shell-shocked and you have this diagnosis that follows you. But what I see is, is kind of like, I like to think of it like when my brother used to pin me down and, and tap my forehead with his, with his knuckle and you'd call it the Chinese mm-hmm. water torture. And it would drive me crazy. I mean, I would just go berserk. It was the worst thing oh, ever. I mean, he may as well have yeah. smacked me really hard and gotten, gotten it over with, right? 
No, it's 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 worse. It's much worse, and and it's torturous. And then you're fighting with your whole body, so your whole body gets tired. Yeah. No, my brother used to do that. My brother and I are 11 months apart, and always kind of, he's a lot higher twitch mm-hmm. muscle guy than I am, so he can get away. Um, so he would do <laughs> shit and then run. Um, and I was not as physical as him, even though I'm 11 wow. months older. You know, so yeah. we were like right. twins almost, but fighting. It, it was crazy. And he would, well, you guys yeah. were, what, a year and a half apart? Same. Well, oh, yeah. 11 months. Well, I'm, oh, I'm no, 11 no, months. We were, we were, we were closer to two mm-hmm. years apart. He was bigger and stronger and meaner. <laughs> we we yeah. didn't have yeah. a very acrimonious relationship growing up, but once in a while we'd get into fights. You, you both allowed each other the, uh, the cover of the window. So you could both would, would allow each other to come in and come and go through the yes. window without telling anybody. That's correct. That was the one thing. Yeah. That was the one thing. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we snuck in once. I'm, I, I think and your brother was in there. I was like, well, your brother's going to, he's going to tell everybody. Yeah. Like, now we, we got an agreement. Absolutely. Cause you had to go through, I always called it the hen house. There was always so many women running around and they were always doing so many things. And like, and they were in pairs and they would just be like acting over here in the corner. Like two of them would be like going through a play and then there'd be another two over here. They'd be like going through some, like, you know, some uh, patterns or something for a dress. And, and then your mom, she was, and then, yeah, you had the one sister who was always with your mom cooking. I forget her name. But yeah, you guys, they were just always like everywhere, <laughs> especially if it was in the evening. Like if you went there in the day, it was quieter, but it was just like everywhere women. And, <clears throat> and yeah. they all got on the same cycle. <gasps> so you were just like, I'm not going home this week. We're going in the window. I'm with you, brother. We're going in the window. They won't even notice we're gone. Uh, those of us with more testosterone had to stick together. Uh, it was tough. Oh, I've I've always been out estrogen in my house, even my dogs, except for my little Butters. Yeah, Mr. Butters was a boy. Oh no, he just passed away. Yeah, we lost. Yeah, he's a fun little Yorkshire Terrier. That's awful. Yeah, love Miss Love. Yeah, so now it's all women, but. My oldest daughter's been out on her own for quite a few years now. Um, she has a, a daughter wow. and, a, and a son. Um, yeah, my granddaughter Lucy's, I think, nine. I'm a grandfather, so I can say I think and be wrong, and somebody will correct me and laugh about it. Um, and my, my grandson Harrison's an easier number for me. He's one and a half. Yeah, my daughter. Yeah. And then we... And then we got uh, Zoe Renee is my youngest daughter. She's 19. She's currently studying. <laughs> she's currently studying just right in, in the right amount of time. She's uh, entertainment or not entertainment. Um, what do they call it? Like hospitality and that, that kind of thing. Oh. She wants to be a, a wedding planner. Yeah. And, you know, she was the girl who always planned right. all the things at the high school, you know. So it's right in line with her her style so we'll let her do that and just okay. do what you want yeah 
We didn't save any money. We were always catching up. Yeah. Still are. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, they say it takes 20 years if you start out poor to yeah. change your class one level. I, I don't know who they are and how, what their data is, but I've heard it said by enough people that now I'm believing believe that. My experience tells me it's true as I, and even as I look at others' lives, it's true. Um, a good job makes a difference in the quality of your life. Yeah, it does. It, it, it makes an enormous difference. I, I, I will say that I, I think we're in unprecedented times right now. Um, and so I am shocked by, well, I'm not shocked. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm amazed at how much anxiety people are feeling right now and how utterly powerless I feel to help some people. And I just don't have enough hours in the, in the week, you know, and yeah. when you work for yourself, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, I was going to yeah. take that Wednesday off, but you know, I had three calls this week for people that are really struggling. <sighs> You know, just it's it's a the life work balance is is very difficult for me now now that I'm I don't have anybody telling yeah. me to do it. Yeah. I don't have hours that are set, you know, by somebody else. But you're needed. I feel needed. Yes, I do feel needed. So yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's tough to motivate oneself to do the things that one needs to do sometimes, but uh, it's important. It's very important to be able to motivate yourself. Um, And it's never been a quality that I've been great at. Um, I do better when I have a friend come by and say, let's do a thing. And then I go over to his house and we do things at his house. So that's what I've been doing lately is kind of trading. Um, oh, that's great. Trading labor. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's just around the house, you know, I'm doing my things. We, uh, we moved a couple buildings, moved, uh, moved a fence, regraded the backyard and it's not done yet, but wow. yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But once once the fence got moved, uh, the space we had became really unusable for what it was. It was our fire pit. That's where we've done our gatherings for years. <coughs> I have an amazing community of friends here in Silverton, Oregon. And we have a bull party every year, which is a party. Um, where I invite musicians to come and play. And we probably have had as much as, you know, 11 acts. We've done a three-day wow. festival. Um, and this is all, like, with, within city limits. So it's kind of... Wow. It's kind of crazy. But there used to be a field next door. So we had this bit of separation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now it's being developed. And so um, that's all changing. And it's all changed. And because it's being developed, I had to move oh, the fence. I see. Yeah. And that changed all the space. So we had to move the buildings and then we've opened up our yard. I'm on the creek. So I wanted to make it so that when you come into the mm-hmm. yard, you can see the creek from the beginning and it flows. So I had to I'm working on a bank a little bit and just kind of bring in some mm-hmm. of my dirt back up the hill, basically. It'll, it'll get back down there eventually because when you're on a hill, all the dirt goes mm-hmm. down to the water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Erosion's real. Sounds amazing. Yeah. It's really nice. I really enjoy it. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I moved so many times. You know, Provo, I was there for mm-hmm. a year and a half, two years. You know, and I was working at the bottling factory and then I put my thumb out one night, went back up to Washington. Just like that. I was sad. I was just sad and crying and lonely and not knowing what meant anything anymore, you know, and, you know, yeah, I was just sad and lonely and I just started crying and walking and uh and i got out to the highway and i put my thumb out and i think i got a ride all the way to ogden that night and uh yeah then the next morning you know i just kind of hunkered under a bridge it was summer hunkered under a bridge for the night you know kind of slept a little bit then uh next morning got a ride pretty early got into idaho um I think I got a ride from like Pocatello to Boise. Um, yeah, it was, it was just my trip. You know, I ended up on the Columbia river, uh, in the back of a truck, uh, at night, uh, just freezing my ass off. And they dropped me at like one in the morning, um, on the four Oh five, which is kind of a, under underground down below highway below the town so i had to walk up an off ramp to the dunkin donuts i had enough money to get a coffee and some donuts and uh went out and put my thumb up again wow yeah Mm-hmm. made it up to shelton by about 10 in the morning and there was nobody home they were pruning uh shears out and the uh, plum tree needed pruning, so I just went at it, and they came home, and it's like, what happened to our tree? <laughs> <laughs> I'm home. <laughs> I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, oh, that tree was horrible. It needed a cleanup. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then I worked there for... Yeah, I was there for a couple, about a year, I guess. And then I, I, you know, stayed at their house for a little bit. And then I got a place up in Olympia and was working at a um, fitness club, you know, doing training, running people through their training programs, getting people mm-hmm. to get their friends to sign up, that kind of thing. And uh, and I wasn't paying the bills and I was always hungry. I remember the, 
uh, Marines knocked on my door one day because I had made the mistake to put my name down in one of their offices once. And they said, are you Gary? I'm like, yeah. And they looked really good in their outfits, you know, with their tan shirt and their blue jeans with the red stripes. They looked really good. And they're like, uh, you hungry? <laughs> that was the right question, actually, because hmm. <laughs> I was. They said, let's go out to eat. And they took me out to eat, and I could eat as much as I want. And, and then they said, hey, let's go take a test. And I was like, okay. So I took the test. And they're like, oh, you're a goddamn genius. Exactly what I wanted to hear again. And uh, <laughs> I was like, Forrest Gump, you're going to run this man's Marine Corps someday. Yeah, next thing I know, um, July 2nd, 1982, I go on into the United wow. States Marine Corps. Did four years. It was good times. It's, it was a blast. And I'm glad that I wasn't in during a hard time because, oh, yeah. man, that's not good. That's not good. You, do you deal with I, any of those folks <clears throat> with trauma? I have. You're our veterans. Um, it's, it's difficult because there's a whole process, you know, that you have to go through to get um, – to get services. And then, yeah. And, and you have to be, Oh, you'd have to be a uh, VA certified guy. Yeah. Is that a, that's a Um, hard process. Most of the work here, because we have a VA just right up there by the university. So most of the, most of the military, um, actually goes to the PTSD clinic here. But I've worked with a few who've been disgruntled with the VA and wanted to just, you know, see somebody in the community. Um, That usually doesn't last, Mm -hmm. though, because in order to maintain their benefits, they have to go through the VA certified process. Certified, yeah. No, it's not. So it's out of pocket, and that's not fun. Mm-hmm. So, this uh, re- this recording typically does well t- for about an hour, but I like to do two hours. So, would you no, be opposed be to great. doing it in two parts? <clears throat> okay, that way I think okay. we'll have less audio challenges. So, what I'll do is I'll send you another link, and just when you put your name in, write part two on okay. it. Okay. Uh, Brent Page Sounds Part good. Two. All right, or PT Two. I think that would fit. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Garland Pepper Show. This is my good friend Brent Pace. We've known each other for a long, long time, but we haven't really actually talked to each other in probably thirty years. Uh, a little bit of Facebook here and there. Um, we're going to come back with the Part Two in a minute. Bet. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, hello, Brent. Welcome back. Bet. Hey, I don't think I put part two anywhere. No, that's fine. I'll, I'll take care of it in post. Okay. That's fine. So we were talking about your work, working with uh, mindful-based kind of trauma treatment using cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and you mentioned a book called Waking the Tiger. What is I that did, about? Yes. What is that? So Waking the Tiger is a... Uh, sort of the seminal work by a gentleman named Peter Levine, who's had a lot of experience and is considered one of the experts in 
trauma therapy right now, along with um, another gentleman named um, Bessel van der Kolk. Bessel van der Kolk wrote a book that made a big splash, and it's called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. And so the two of them together, um, and along with a, a third gentleman, gentleman who's um, Brazilian, um, well, honestly, I don't know if he's Brazilian and Port- or Portuguese. I just know he speaks Portuguese. Mm-hmm. His name is uh, Porges, um, P-O-R-G-E-S, who has developed a theory called the polyvagal theory. Those three people have been really influential in the development of a style that I have of working with trauma. And I mentioned um, narrative therapy as well as um, mindfulness CBT and also existential therapy. And I I would have to back up a little bit and say that um, I'm more of an existential therapist than I am anything else. And so the, the trauma is, um, is just sort of in addition to that. And I would say the, the individual who's in, inspired me the most and continues to inspire me is um, Irvin Yalom. Yalom is a uh, Stanford, was a Stanford professor he wrote the book on group psychotherapy that all of us use who go through school to become therapists. And he has, um, he's, he's really had a profound impact on the way I see clients and the way I see myself with clients and the way I see the importance of staying in a place of humility and, and recognizing what I don't know. In fact, I, I've had the opportunity over the years of being the site supervisor at a variety of different places and being able to supervise um, a fair number of student therapists. And the one thing that I want to make sure they understand before they go off into the world is a very difficult paradox, which is that if you walk into a session and you say, I've got this, I know what I'm doing, and that's the attitude you have throughout the session, then you don't have any business being a therapist. And usually when I say that, I get a really quixotic look from people and they kind of go, well, aren't you supposed to be an expert? And I said, I didn't say you can't come across as an expert that's okay you just need to make sure you know what you don't know and what you don't know is usually what you need to figure out in the process of that session that intake in the process of meeting with the person over a period of time correct and so yeah. yeah yeah so um and, and that's and that's a you know a thing that comes from a lot of years of reading Yalom and and doing the work and and then doing my own work. So it's Reuben Yalom, <clears throat> Irvin, Irvin, yeah, I R V I N. Y A L L Y A L O M. 
O-M. All of a sudden, I'm thinking I'm spelling his name wrong, his first name wrong. I always, I always spell things wrong. I just discovering that it's because, I mean, I'll do it when I'm writing. Um, I will actually just transpose, like, um, or if I'm thinking of the letter uh, uh, number four, I'll write the four for the F, and then O U R, and then be like, "What did I just do?" Aha. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking that's the uh, that's the catfish from Utah Lake. That's the catfish. <laughs> that's the mercury. <laughs> it's the goddamn mercury. Is what's going on there? <laughs> so, okay, so Irvin's name is spelled I R V I N. How's that? Yep, Y A L O M. That's right. There we go. So he's still around. I mean, he even wrote a. a um, not so interesting autobiography, but if you're interested in, in reading anything he wrote, there's a, he wrote a little book called the gift of therapy. And, and he said, you know, I wrote this after um, reading Rilke's poet or letters to a young poet. And, and sure enough, it's, it's a book of just tiny little chapters. Sometimes the chapters are only a, a, maybe three quarters of a page long. And it's it's a delightful book, whether you're a, a therapist or somebody who's interested in therapy or somebody who goes to therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, he's just been an, a, uh, an inspiration to me for a long time. So you find these kind of thought leaders that you connect with and you utilize their principles in your practice. Correct. How How do you know when you're getting results or is that actually the measure? I mean, there's gotta be a measure, right? So it, that's a great question. I had, I had a conversation with somebody today about that because uh, we were, we were talking about social work being kind of a soft science and social workers like to say things like, well, you know, it feels right. So it's probably the thing to do. Mm. And that's a problem there's there there needs to be data that shows that what you're doing works right and um i've been really impressed with this nonprofit i'm working with which is called flourish therapy um, that is specific to lgbtq youth and the reason for that is they are very determined to be able to demonstrate that what we're doing is actually reducing the risk of youth suicide in Utah, because we're one of the states that has the highest, one of the highest youth suicide rates. I, there's a lady out of Provo that kind of got this going. So I think who you're talking about probably is Stephanie um, Larson. She's the one who started in circle. Okay. And that was the organization I was working with until there was kind of a falling out between her and the director of Flourish Therapy. So she had asked this woman to come in and do the therapy, and that was working really well, and at least we thought it was. And then Stephanie said she wanted to do in-house therapy, and we kind of got the boot. So our organization now, Flourish Therapy, is separate from Encircle, but we certainly work with the same clients so you're the r mormons <laughs> the what <laughs> you're the you're the r mormons of the r mormons yes yeah 
of the LGBT counseling communities. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but um, there are there there's an arsenal of outcome tools that are actually free to use that anybody who's running a you know a clinic can you know tap into. And so we're using these to, to, to demonstrate to funders or people who are interested or to ourselves, really to ourselves more than anybody else, whether or not a person's depression level is, is decreasing or if their suicide risk is increasing or decreasing or, or you know, whether or not we're the right fit. And, and that last thing I said, I think is the most important thing, which is when are you the right fit for a client? And that's been something that I've been really fascinated with over the years because I've been to a dozen therapists and until a couple of years ago was always disappointed. You know, I'd go see a therapist and I'd be like, Oh, you know, I've been seeing this guy for two years and I'm in it, you know, so many thousand dollars and I just don't feel better. It's just, it's not working. And so I sort of leave disgruntled and, wait a year or two and then go see somebody else and same thing. And, and then a couple of years ago, someone suggested I go see this woman that I'm seeing now and she's just a gem. And I think what, what that, you know, that term fit means is that, you know, whether it's flow or it's you click with somebody or you, you suddenly feel like maybe you're worthy of love and respect for the first time in your life when you sit in the room with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You want to stick with that no. person. Yeah. Fits, fits very important. Um, you know, it's with concerts, it should be like almost always half hour free first half hour free just to see if you fit. I mean, I've, gone into counselors before and it's just like dude I'm, I'm more enlightened than you so next right you know right and I had a client today who said you're the fifth person I've seen this week I said what <laughs> how could that be <laughs> I mean I didn't say that out loud but inside I'm thinking this guy's really serious about finding the right person yeah that's important and I thought good for you that's how everybody should do it. Right. So. Right. It's quite the journey. So you, you, um, we could probably, I'd like to know what you are doing in your personal life these days and a little bit about your relationships with your sisters. Yeah, sure. And I know that you still have some pretty good relationships with them. And even your father, you have a pretty good relationship with now, don't you? <clears throat> Well, no. Um, so, my father started to develop dementia about twelve years ago, mm. and it's it's been downhill, of course, since then. Um, George, what do I have to say about George? He is a remarkable human being. I will say he has, uh, you know, he's the youngest of 12 kids. 
Hmm. All 11 brothers and sisters have, have, um, gosh, I hate that term passed away. Um, they've all died. All of them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he had a pretty rough go of it there when he was a kid. I mean, his mom died when he was nine years old. And then the older siblings knew what, what was going on. I mean, she died. They kept saying she died of a broken heart. And in fact, what had happened is my grandfather was seeing a different woman. And so we have our suspicions about how that all went down. And this very angry, hurt, traumatized woman who became my father's um, stepmother um, was hated by all the siblings. Mm. And there was a lot of uh, fighting in in the house when my dad was growing up. And then my father wanted my dad to take over the farm in Burley, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And my dad was not a farmer. He hated farming. No. It was not his thing. It was not his jam. He tried to take, you know, he married my mom. I don't know if you remember this, but my mom was, from, my mom's from Oregon. She Miss Oregon. Yeah, she was Miss Oregon in 1954. Where did she grow out? In Milwaukee. So, Milwaukee, Oregon. Yeah. One of my guests, uh, Farshad, lives in Milwaukee. Beautiful place. They were right on the Willamette River. I've been to their mm-hmm. house. and It's a beautiful spot. It is. So, Dad, you know, it, it, we've had an interesting relationship over the years. I'll say this. When, when he was told that I was gay because of him, he would make an effort to spend time with me, which was hard because he had these 12 kids. He had three jobs. He was trying to keep ahead. Right. And, you know, there would be times he would do speaking engagements outside of Utah. So we'd drive to Idaho or to California or Nevada or whatever. And he would try really hard to involve me and to have this private time with me. But it was always so, so uncomfortable and it felt very stilted. Yeah, And so the relationship just felt like, you know, I could never tell if it was, it was a spontaneous and, and sincere, authentic desire to be with me, or if he was doing it to make me straight. <laughs> so it was mm-hmm. tough. And then, right. You know, well, I remember we, we had to make an appointment to see him. <laughs> you needed to talk to him one day and he had like, a little roster outside of his office was where everybody had signed up or something yeah. to, to go see, you know, Dr. Pace. Right. And, and, you know, we had to put our name on the list. And then I think we went over to the Wilkie and got some nachos and then came back. Yep. Absolutely. That, that was life that was with crazy. George. Mm-hmm. So um, I have great respect for him um, for a lot of reasons, but um, there was, there's a lot of pain there still. Because even when I came back, you know, I, I, I followed this woman to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I had every intention to marry her. And her name's Diane. And my mother's name is Diane. And my mother approved of her. It was the first time she ever approved of the woman I brought home. <laughs> what was Diane's maiden name? Brown. 
All right, I'm going to find her picture and put it up with our podcast. <laughs> no, you're not. Miss Oregon. Oh, you mean uh, my mother's maiden name? I thought you meant this woman. Yeah, your mother's. Oh, no, 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 your mother. Carmen. C-A-R-M-A-N. Yeah, not Carmen is in Oh, no, I, I... Carmen is in M-A-N, Carman. Carman. If, you know, yeah, I, one I who can... Makes, one who sells cars. Well, I can... I, there's a lovely picture that sh- that ended up on the front of the uh, whatever newspapers published in in Portland um, with her and my dad standing in front of the spire of the Salt Lake Temple. That's and cool. they were a good looking couple, you know they <clears throat> they had everything going for they them. They were, but Dad and I. Interestingly enough, before he started really having a lot of problems with dementia, it was interesting. I, I'll never forget, I was driving downtown Salt Lake and I, you know, after I came home from Massachusetts, I met my now husband and I met him in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I walked in and I had come home sober i'd been sober for a few years and things were going fairly well and i got a job that i wanted and then i had a horrible run with some guys that i was dating that just ghosted me and it was terrible i was just in the dumps and i started drinking again i drank every night for a month you know six pack a night for a month well and a fifth of vodka on the weekends and after a month of this, I was like, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? You've got to go to a meeting up in Salt Lake because they had gay meetings up here in Salt Lake. So I drove up one night. Oh, good. And I came to St. Paul's Episcopal Church on Ninth East. And they had the meeting down in the preschool that they had. So we were sitting on these tiny little chairs. And I look across the room and I see this beautiful Hispanic man. And... You've always been a fool for Hispanic uh, men. Always. I remember, I remember we're at McDonald's that one day, and there's this man in front of us, and he's a pretty handsome guy, um, a Hispanic man. And you were you started just like overtly licking your lips, <laughs> like, oh, I want you. I was just like, oh, my God, what are you doing? I was so embarrassed. And I was just like, what is happening here? Because... <laughs> There was a part of me that didn't believe you were gay at that point still, I think, you know, it's like, he's just pretending, but this is, oh my God, stop it. <laughs> and this was what, 1980, 1979 or something. 1979. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty overt in Provo, Utah. Utah. Pretty overt, I was, I was, yeah. I, I always enjoyed the shock value of that. But anyway, so I see this guy. And he's got this button-down white, this white Oxford, you know, button-down shirt on him. And it's unbuttoned a little bit more than usual. <laughs> I can see his chest. And he's, he's a gym bunny. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, God, I'm not going to be able to sit through this meeting. So when it's over, we all go to coffee. <laughs> and I'm still a little buzzed because I had been drinking that morning. And so mm-hmm. we, we, go to, we go to the coffee garden in Salt Lake, which is a well-known little coffee shop. And 
I go out to smoke because I was smoking at the time. And I, I, I turned to one of his friends and I said, what's the matter with him? And I said, what, what, why would you think there's something wrong with him? I said, because he's by himself. Surely there's something wrong with him. And he said, oh, no, he's had a he's had a string of bad relationships and he's just taking his time right now. And so from that moment, and I kid you not, I, I gave him my number. He gave me his number. I waited a couple of days because I didn't want to seem too needy. And I called him and he was running the respiratory department at one of the hospitals up here in Salt Lake. And I called him mm -hmm. and he was just hoping, hope against hope that I wouldn't ask him to be my sponsor because then it yeah. wouldn't have worked, right? I had right. no interest in his being my sponsor. <laughs> 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 and I think I moved in with him like a month later. <laughs> really? So you guys just Oh, it was instantaneous. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And it's been 28 years. So, which is quite a bit of time in gay years when you consider, you know, that. It really, it really is. I mean, after AIDS, it became a lot more common for people to say, fuck it, I'm not playing it anymore. I'm going to find somebody I love and yes. stay with them. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that was probably a good trend. I think, you know, like with anything, you know, there's a celebration when the liber when the liberty happens. Yeah. And that was that was post eighties, you know, kind of thing. Um seventies and eighties. I mean, gay was happening in the eighties, but it wasn't like you could come out in mm -hmm. high school. Like you can now. Kids come yep. out in high school. They yes, have clubs they now. And, you know, that's that's awesome because it it's a lot better than kids getting beat up. Yeah. And ostracized and teased and, you know, demoralized. Well, there's plenty of that going on still in Utah. I can tell you that. Oh, I imagine. I mean, it's happening everywhere. There's people who are afraid of things they don't yeah. understand. That's all. That's all it is. Yeah. You know, I have to tell you that um, this this amazing man that I'm married to now, and we got married about five years ago um, when it was legal down in California first. And then a couple of months later, there was that kind of anomaly where it became legal in Utah for a little while. And um, and if you jumped in that window, you're still married. Yes. So we had friends who got married in Oregon during the first uh, yes. law. But but. The next law annulled their marriage. Yeah. That never happened to us. So they had to get married. They had to get married <clears> again. <throat> right. I think it was I think it was the wedding industry. They're like, oh, let's annul them. <laughs> gays spend get gays spend the most, <laughs> you know. We'll get them to redo their weddings. Oh, it's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a lobbyist <laughs> from the fucking gay planners union. <laughs> he was, and, and, and he was probably gay probably you know it's like oh yeah mm -hmm. so i have to tell you though this settle is, down Margaret. this this uh i i didn't think this was gonna work with my husband his name's ralph he's Raphael, right? yeah. so 
I didn't think it was going to work because we came from very different backgrounds. He, he grew up in Utah, but in Carbon County, which is where all the coal mines are. His, his dad was a coal yep. miner. He was a coal miner. His dad, the... I sold encyclopedias the what? Oh, you did? I, yeah. In Carbon County. Wow. Price yeah. and Duchesne. And, so yeah. he lived in Sunnyside, and he graduated with 12 other people. And we went to their... God, what, what would, it, would it have been 40 years? Is that possible? Mm. I, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, it was a forty-year right. reunion. Yeah, I think, and I think there were about eight 30. of them left. Well, how old is he? Is he? Like He's sixty-eight. 60. Yeah. Yeah, he 40. turned sixty just last month. So, anyway, um, I did everything I could to make it not work. <laughs> I just, I you really tested, tested him hard. <laughs> Nobody's ever loved me this way. I don't believe yeah. it. I'm going to check gonna, you. I'm going to make this yeah. really hard. How about, how about this side <laughs> of me? What do you think of this? Yeah. How about how about this? I, I do this too. Exactly. We're going to be at McDonald's and I'm going to lick my lips at another Mexican man because I'm turned on by him too. How about how do you feel about that? Oh, it was it was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly for a while. Yeah. You are a passionate man and when you get a a fear in you or an anger you at some point I think have to work it out because you're buttoned down in 99% of That's your true. life. So you're let it out has got is it comes out as kind of a, it's pretty passionate. How about we put it that way? It's one way to look at it. I, I think there was a, a confirmation bias, right? that I was unlovable and I was going to prove that I was unlovable. And if he could just reject me, then it would, you know, it would prove, prove it. Yeah. He wouldn't do there it. He wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. But I, br- <laughs> I bring that all that, all that up because his father was very sick at the time with black lung. And he was a, an amazing human being that um, Jean Martinez and was very sweet to me. And the minute he got to know me, he said to Ralph that I was the right one. And he'd never said that before. And then when I went to my family with Ralph, my mother and father called me into their, my father's office the next day and said, we need to let you know that we don't want you to bring him here ever again, but we think that maybe you would never see us again. So it's okay to bring him here, but don't you show any affection in front of the grandkids. So I said, I'm sure your sister lets you guys (laughs) hold hands or whatever you need to do. But yeah, but at that time, all my sisters were on board with my parents. So crazy. That's true. And so I I said, I thought you always had one ally. I thought you had one ally. Um, not really. Okay. So I said, that's bullshit. And, I, and that word had never been uttered in my family's house that they knew of. And my mother kicked me and my dad, <coughs> and she threw a glass of water in my face and kicked me. And my dad came around the, the desk like he was going to hit me, which he had never done in his life. Oh, my God. 
And oh my god, they said we love the sinner and hate the sin. And I said that's bullshit. Oh. And then they really got mad, and I said, "Okay, I'm out of here." And I just left. And they didn't talk to me. You said <clears> bullshit <throat> twice. It was bad. It was bad. So, so a few. <laughs> look, I'm as happiest as I've ever been, mom and dad. Look, I'm finally <laughs> happy. Finally, as happy as I've ever been. Don't say bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. Don't say bullshit. So, yeah, it's. But I'll tell you, yeah, eventually sad. they they called me a few months later and said, "We want you to come to Thanksgiving. We want you to bring Ralph." And Ralph was terrified, so he bought the biggest centerpiece he could find. <laughs> right. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. So he could hide behind it. So he could hide behind behind it. <laughs> That is so perfect. That's a smart man yeah. you got there. And it worked perfectly. My mother was on her best behavior. She was. She couldn't see him, or could she? <laughs> she kissed him on the cheek. And and yeah, ever since did. that day, I think they would probably be just fine if I disappeared and Ralph just kept showing up at the house. <laughs> oh, she oh, loves she Ralph. Adores Ralph. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Man. Did your dad ever oh, come around to absolutely. him? Absolutely. And he couldn't keep his hands off him. Oh, my God, my dad. Does he need a T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm making a T-shirt oh. for my father. I am going to make a T-shirt oh, for my father. Me. What's it say? It says you're lactose yes. intolerant. You know, he won't know. He won't know. <laughs> so horrible. You're terrible. That's so funny. <laughs> latent uh, yeah. anyway so oh. you know there was a day after we'd been together for five or six years that my dad called me and I picked up the phone I was driving downtown Salt Lake and my mom was on the phone with him and he said sweetie can you get off the phone please and she said well I guess so so I have something I need to talk to Brent about and I was like oh boy here we go and he says Son, I just have never had the opportunity to tell you what I want to tell you right now. I said, okay. He said, I just want to tell you, I am proud of you. I couldn't be more proud of you as my son. Wow. Wow. So a little context here for you folks. All George had to say to Brent to crush him was I'm disappointed. And to hear, I'm proud of you. This is monumental stuff. Monumental, especially after all these trials and tribulations. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, you asked me about my sisters. Um, it's been a complicated ride. Um, some of them have been very angry and have been my detractors and have said horrible things behind my back and to my face and continue to do so. <laughs> and, and then others, there's, there's five of the younger sisters, they call themselves the Fab Five. And I think mm -hmm. just generationally they're different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so... 
I've been in contact with them a great deal and we have a running text message going with, you know, some of them and it's, it's a, it's been a joy. And are you tight with a couple very, of them now? Are, all, or all five, the fab five, are you like, are they your family? I, now? I would say so. I mean, yeah. Of the family. Yeah. So you had an older sister who, you know, was shunned, you know, because she got pregnant. Yeah. And does she understand you at no. that level? God. The phone is ringing. And by the way, we have a phone that's a landline that we never answer. <laughs> so never call our landline. We just get, there's two people who call there. It's Rite Aid. Well, three, when it's election time, it gets a lot of rings. Um, but it's, yeah, Rite Aid and uh, Tammy's mother. I see hmm So where were we, sir? Well, yeah, I had an older sister who got pregnant and, you know, she has, of course, all of her kids are grown and she has grandkids now. And she eventually left her husband and got married again and left him. And, but she, she toes the Mormon mark, you know, and she's, she's very, very much uh, a, a doobie, good doobie. She's sweet. She's sweet sure. to me in a lot of ways, but boy, I said something on a Facebook post a, a couple months ago and I was unfriended and <laughs> in about 30 seconds. Yeah. Well, to, you know, now there's just more fragility. It's all the wounds yeah. are open. Right. Political, sociologically, and, um, you know, they're all just, everything's, everything's a lot more tender right now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like a dry desert and all you have to do is throw out a match and yes, you can get a fire. I agree. And, and then that's, you know, that's just the environment we're in right now. And, you know, I hope we can heal I that. Hope so. I hope that we, I hope that we as human beings can kind of start to recognize the fact that we're all kind of the same stuff and we all kind of come at it differently and that's okay. As long as you're not hurting somebody right. else. Or yourself too much. Because if you're hurting yourself too much, you're going to end up hurting others because you will be debilitated. And if you're debilitated, you either become a burden or, you know, right. worse. I, I, I do want to say something else, though. Um, my oldest, the sister that I lived with in Ogden for a year, she has had mm -hmm. how many kids? Six kids, I guess. A lot of my sisters have, yeah, you oh, have a, lot a lot of kids. I have 62 nieces and nephews. Oh, my God. And, and my brother hasn't had any kids. So it's all the, it's all the girls. They're all fertile myrtles. But fertile <laughs> myrtles. Yeah. 62. That's a lot of people in two generations. That's a lot of cars, a lot of houses. <laughs> a lot of, it's a lot of drinking water. A lot it's of a lot of eating. A lot of food. It's a lot, a lot of, of things. <laughs> People. It's a lot of toilet paper. And uh, if they carry the pace genetic predisposition for creating it's females. a lot of those things, too. Yeah, there's a lot more toilet paper. <laughs> so I got a call from my oldest sister's son. <clears throat> and he was 16 mm -hmm. at the time. And he said, 
Uncle Brent, when did you know you were gay? And I thought, oh boy, here we go. And so mm -hmm. I, at that point, I was really glad I had moved back to Utah. Because here's a kid who lived yeah. up in Logan, which is a rural town in Utah. It's a milking, yes, a cattle town, dairy and town. He, God, that kid has cojones. He went to his junior, you know, his junior prom with a boy in this little town. Yeah, well, he did. And his wow. dad is a an institute teacher up there, or was before he retired. And then I'll be damned if his younger brother didn't come out. Yeah. Oh goodness. And you know, we took we took this kid, the older one, to Pride one day, and. Um, he wanted to go with this college boy. And we were like, uh-uh, you are 17 years old. You are not going to Pride with a college kid. We will drive the hour and a half to get you, and we will drive you back at night. Sure. It's a nice drive. It anyway, is a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. So we went up and got him. And then on our way back, I said, hey, will you call and tell your mom that we're going to be a little late? He said, oh, she doesn't know that I went to Pride. <laughs> Oh, ouch. You, that, that's a betrayal of trust with yes. your sister, and he didn't recognize no. that, did he? He said, well, I thought it would be better to that's... get permission or to get forgiveness than permission. I said, in this case, I think you should have gotten permission. Because you involved me. Yeah, you involved me. This is my sister's relationship here, kid. Yeah. Well, you know. It's been a challenge. I'll say that. But he is. So how, how is she so... with all that? It depends I mean, on the day, you know, I mean, I just, I, mm, I adore the sister so much and it's just, it's a struggle because she wants to, she, she's told me many times that she can't reconcile the issue of homosexuality and Mormonism. I, I think she's like yes, a lot of people. No, it's impossible. Actually, I think she's correct. I think yeah. it's impossible. They've actively come out against gays. I mean, in terms of marriage. In terms of it as an actual being, like you are gay, so it's a being, right? And they think it's a, they still think it's, you know, a mental no, disorder. they think it's a behavior and not an identity. <sighs> I think that's the challenge. Here's the thing. Here, here's, here's the real test. If you are attracted to somebody and you are a boy, you know directly whether or not you are attracted because you have another brain that operates in and of itself and will tell you what you are attracted to. Mine was attracted to getting off, but it was mainly attracted to women. Like I would think about a woman and I would get aroused and it was obvious. You probably had the same experience, but it was with men. That's right. Absolutely. Is that correct? So we have this like telltale knowledge of ourselves. And when we try to deny ourselves, we, we lock ourselves into these chambers. And if you lock yourself into a chamber, there's a part of yourself that's not actively involved in being you. And therefore, you are half a person. So you really need to come to terms with yourself. It's very important. It's the most important thing. And if sexuality is in the middle of you coming into terms with yourself, 
That is why you are locked up in every other relationship in your life. Nicely said. And, you know, I, I love so many good Mormons. I love Dan and Pat so much. But, you know, they're, they're going to toe the Mormon line. And they're going to think, Brent, well, Brent just, you know, he, he settled, I guess, with his desires, mm-hmm. you know. And that's, it's sad. It really is. Um, that so many families in Utah have lost their children through shunning. And that's what it is. It's an ancient form of shunning, excommunication, shunning, um, or even loving the sin or hating the sin. It's all shunning. And it needs to stop. You need to all come around like Diane did and fall in love with the lover of the one you love. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, that my mother has a uh, wall of fame as you walk into her foyer, as she calls it. And it's the pictures of all of my sisters and my brother when they got married. And this is not a religious issue because my brother left the church many years ago and his picture's up there with his Episcopalian wife or whatever she is. So Diane passed no, away. She, she's alive. Mm. So every time we'd walk into the foyer of my mother's house, there would be this reminder that we were not a part of the family because our picture wasn't up there the wall of fame and then a year ago that changed she asked me for a picture and I didn't know what it was for but she put it up on the wall oh my god you know it's amazing there's a few things that have shook me in terms of just these layers of acceptance and how long they take I mean George knew you were gay 30 years ago 15 years ago, you come home with your husband? How, how long no, ago? No, it was tw- 28 that, years you ago. Said? With Ralph? Oh, okay. But then they come around. But this whole process, it's, it's kind of the same with racism at this point, where it's just like, how hard is it for us to drop an idea and accept a new idea? How, how hard is it for us to understand things that we, that aren't part of our own world? It's very hard. And yet we have to try to have empathy for people who are being arrested at, at unprecedented rates, who are being killed at unprecedented rates because of data and news. Absolutely. But it's happening. And we have to flip our heads. We have to flip our own heads. We have to go, oh, this really does matter. We're going to have a revolution in the streets if we don't fix this problem. And it was, and it's, it's been happening to marginalized communities forever. 
And I don't know what it is in us, that evil part of us as humans that marginalize others and be able to just give them a nickname, you know, and say they are this. And then we give them this little fucking nickname. And if you've got a nickname, you can kill the nickname. You know? Marginalizing others, other actual human beings. And yet when you sit down at a diner with almost anybody in the whole damn world, you'll find one thing. We're all the same mm -hmm. shit. We're all the same stuff. And it's, it's, that's the miracle. If you want to find God, go talk to your neighbor. Maybe not that neighbor. <laughs> Maybe the other neighbor over there. You, know. you want to find God, look at yourself in the mirror and tell you I love you. Mm. And you'll see something amazing. You'll see a miracle back at yourself. You'll see yourself right there. And you'll say, wow. Look at all this stuff that's happening all at once that is me. And I can't actually tell you what it is because it's bigger than what I know. It's all of these systems in place that are moving through me. I've got my heart pumping. I've got my blood being like filtered through my kidneys. And I got my liver working overtime most of the time. Mm. You know, it's all happening simultaneously. It's mm. a goddamn miracle. It's amazing. Remember when we used to get feel really bad when we said, God damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't say that. That's really bad. That's the worst one you can say. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's one of the big ten. Oh, God. I love you, Gary. <laughs> I love you too, Brent. You opened up my mind to a lot of different things. You opened me up to theater. You opened me up to art. Mm. Yeah. I remember we'd go to the, uh, the Wilkie. So the Wilkie is the Wilkinson Center at BYU. And it was the kind of the cultural events center of the Brigham Young University campus. They had their cafe there. They had usually, an, they always had uh, on-running art show going. Uh, it'd be pottery or, or pictures and things like that. They also had a sound room where you could actually go and get old Pink Floyd, put it on a record and put some headphones on of the highest quality and listen. Um, living in a town like Provo, for me, was a cultural um, experience because... Although it's a very small town, the university itself is very metropolitan in its kind of styling <laughs> slash Mormon. <laughs> but they did have good art exhibits. They had good plays. Um, they had a, a lot going on, I actually thought. Not a lot of music, though. I, didn't, I don't remember a lot of music happening at BYU. Well, they had the young ambassadors and they had an international cinema there that changed my life. You were buying for Sundance, um, I think, when you were 
when you were um, at the French house, you were still buying for Sundance. You were uh, mm. perusing French films and letting them know what you thought would yeah. be good. Did that work out? I mean, you're not doing it anymore. It, it's so funny because, but I probably didn't what pay happened well. is I had, um, I had been kicked out of BYU a second time after I got back from my mission, if you can believe it. And the <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, it's, there's an intolerance there. And it's the woman happen. who was in charge of the French program said, "I don't care if you were kicked out; you can still be the French, you know, the director of the French house, and I'll help you find a job until they let you back in." And so that's what happened. I think yes, that was the was. period I saw you. I think that was the period I saw you, and you had actually been like, "Yeah, I've been excommunicated." I'm like, "They let you live here still? <laughs> yeah, I got a deal." <laughs> <laughs> i got a deal i got a deal so this is your deal the lady who runs the french house gives you like yeah she did you know, i like you she did she liked I me i like you and yeah. she knew it was because i was gay she didn't care and it was great and yeah. i went back to school you know after some after they punished me for a while so how does that feel um now you're you you've always kind of pushed the field down until it comes out, but and and I think you have to do it if if you're gay or if if you're black or anything. You have to kind of. I've been talking to my black friends a lot lately because you know they're feeling really really sad and they're feeling overwhelmed and they're feeling like I don't want to tell anybody anything anymore. Y'all should just be figuring this shit out already. Yeah, yeah, right. They're tired. They're fucking tired. And I got, I got to imagine it's the same that you get tired of, of like, especially in Utah. Cause there's this, there's this kind of naivete that, that mm. is Utah. Yeah. You know, it feels like a place. Me and <laughs> we're going to go there. It felt like, Utah. I, I got to figure that line because I don't. I think I just totally fucked that line up. But it's the last Raising line Arizona. in Arizona. Uh, yeah, I can't remember either, Arizona. But it's something like that. I, I got to remember it because I think I want to reference it all the time because there is a state of mind yeah. that is absolutely, Utah. and it's not all bad. No, absolutely. it's wonderful in a lot of ways. The uh, community the ability of the community to come together and help each other, even though they have two years supply of food in their house to move is phenomenal. I can't tell you how many two year supplies of food you move. If you live in a, in a church that actually has students in it all the time, but I'm going to tell you, it's a lot like every other weekend you're moving somebody's house and they're students, but the prophet told them to have two years of food. So now you move their furniture, you move their refrigerator, all the hard stuff usually, right? No. Now you've got three hours of moving canned, glassed food out of a basement that smells like mold. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the beautiful burden of being a Mormon, though. That and, you know, getting up at five in the morning, go work in the cherry orchards for the... Uh, church yes. welfare 
<sighs> but you know, after the sun comes up, you've only got two hours left to fulfill your duty to God and community, <laughs> which is actually a pretty cool thing. I really enjoy. I really enjoy the concept of the church um, welfare, and we, my mom being a single mom with three boys, took some of that on occasion. It was a good effort on their part, and some things were excellent, and some things were horrible. Because yeah. they they really didn't have a market based quality system, you know, where it was like, hey, yeah, this sucks, so you probably don't want to make that anymore. <laughs> No, they just kept they just kept making it. Nobody's buying this. That's right. They're not buying. They're poor. Give them this. That's that's what you give them this. The soap was pretty much lye. They would just give you soap that was made out of lye right. back in the day. It was lye and rendered fat. Well, with with twelve kids and even on a professor's degree, I imagine you guys had to get welfare. Yes, sometimes. we didn't. We didn't when I was uh, old enough to be sentient enough to be aware of what was happening but boy my sisters tell about my mom getting those welfare boxes of food and she would take the uh labels off all of them you know oh yeah yeah it was embarrassing they all said deseret on them they all said deseret on it with really bad art but what a great program it really is Mm mm-hmm yeah, it really is. I mean, a lot of churches talk about doing service um, to community and, you know, recognizing communities across the globe and going over there and fixing them and not recognizing that their very own community that they right. live in is fucked up. And and I think the Mormons get that, that there are people in our community who are going to fall through the cracks. So we're going to help them when that happens. But they also encourage people not to go on exactly. federal welfare because they don't believe in it which you know i i don't know i th- I think if you need to go on federal welfare and you know it's the situation at hand then then do it but i think our welfare program has become a substance program you know where we're going to give you this where we don't kind of look at people and go well, there's a reason why you're on welfare. You're deficient in all of these qualities. We're going to test you and see where you actually have qualities, like your you know, innate abilities, your understandings that, that you have. And we're going to try to find you a place where you can be productive and be able to feed your family. Now, here's the thing. Typically, people get a job and they, they, they actually, in the end, if you look at all things considered, they make less money. You know, they got, now they got to pay for child care. They got to buy a car insurance and they got to buy gas every week to get to their job. So their costs go up significantly because they have a job. And although straight across the board, it looks like you're making the same amount of money. You're not. That's right. So the struggle of moving out of poverty needs to be considered. I think we need to figure out how to help people move out of poverty Yes, give them subsistence till they need till they can till they can move into their world. But the other challenge coming up that I don't think well, Andrew Chang was talking. Uh, uh, Chang, was Andrew Chang? Yang, Andrew Chang, uh, 
Yang, Yang, there you go. Andrew Yang running for president was talking about this. You know, we're actually, you lose, we, we don't have enough like jobs. And at some point the whole thing's consumer driven and if it's all robots making everything, then you, you have to create a consumption me- right. mechanism. And that's why he was talking about basic minimum wage. Right. But uh, you don't want to strip away purpose. No, can't. No. And, and for so many people, work is the purpose. I mean, it can be so much more than work. And, and it, can be, it can be work in other ways. Mm-hmm. Right? But it, it shouldn't be the whole purpose. I think it's been easy in my own life to let work sort of consume me because I feel like it's, you know, mm. it, it's easy to feel like it's a calling. And I think that's sort of some of the vestiges of being raised Mormon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, well, let me ask you something. When you are, done with a session and then you come to your next session and then it's your third session are you seeing improvement with somebody oh in in some cases some people oh, absolutely. are not not with everybody and and again you know you have to define what improvement is and you have to um, be sensitive to the fact that there are layers right and it depends on how many layers you want to go down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a person can improve very quickly but then realize that maybe their life isn't quite what they wanted it to be or maybe you've introduced them to a new idea that is going to take them down a path that's going to cause more work Well, that's the thing. Once you right. crack the shell, the egg is out. And now you gotta you gotta figure out how exactly. you're gonna cook that egg. I I'm, I don't know why I'm so well. I like that tonight. Metaphor, I just feel metaphorical. Yeah, and and so well, the other night I'm talking to my friend Marie, and she lost her sister at a young age, and she was on task to watch her sister. So they were at a hotel and she was also on task to watch the laundry because Marie was little mama. Well, her little, she actually, I don't think she was on task to watch her little sister, but her little sister admired her and followed her everywhere. Well, she didn't recognize her sister was following her. And then her sister walks, is walking behind her, sees the pool, goes into the pool, the gates open and dies in the pool, drowns. Yeah. So this family, Native American family, um, they are torn apart. They are the saddest I've ever seen anybody be. Um, and it's, it's gone on for 10 years. The kids go into counseling for years and years. She says 10 years later, 10 years later, they're in this group counseling meeting, finally. Another group counseling mm-hmm. meeting, but 10 years later. And the counselor opens them all up and says, who feels guilty about Cheyenne's death 
and every one of them felt guilty. Wow. They felt like it was their responsibility. And she says, you would think that would have been the opening. And she says it was. But it really f- fucked some of us up. Some of us just disengaged from the process. Huh. Didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah. So trauma is is typically held in guilt. Yes. Well, Would you agree? Guilt and shame. Yeah. Absolutely. Guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we we can be better than hating ourselves. And I think a lot of us do that because of our trauma, you know, whether it's a person who has had to kill because their country told them to, or a person who's rejected because their, I, their being is not accepted within the normative culture. I mean, trauma, trauma is a human experience. Right. Just birth itself is trauma. How we deal with it is important. And mindfulness is helpful. And what is mindfulness, Brent? Well, Lao Tzu said that if we're in despair or in depression, then we're living in the past. If we're anxious and nervous, we're living in the future. Our only chance for peace is to be in the moment. That's mindfulness. Ramdas said, "Be here now, be didn't you? Be Ram here Dass. now." Do you ever read Ramdas? Yeah. You ever? Read? Yeah. So I got inculcated in hippie culture when I got out of the Marines because mm-hmm. I moved to Santa Rosa, and. And most of those kids in Santa Rosa were children of hippies. A lot of communes happened up there around Petaluma, Santa Rosa. You know, just keep going north in California, and that's where the communes were. So it sounds like we're probably losing audio. Yeah. Because we're at 63 minutes. I am here. Yes. Are you there? You're there. Okay. Brent, is there anything you would like? Okay. okay, so I'd like to finish with this thought. So as one person in the world, what is the one thing you do that makes this world a better place? The one thing I do that makes this world a better place. You know, it's, I I love that question. I think we should ask ourselves that every day. I think, I 
that's a tough one though because i think there is in in the moments of self doubt you know in the moments of um even self-loathing that can still happen at times when, you know, maybe I'm not doing my own self-care the way I need to or whatever. That if I can bring myself back to that moment mm -hmm. of just recognizing that what I'm doing when I breathe is what you were referencing earlier, that there's all of this stuff that's going on simultaneously in our body, this beautiful synchronicity but that there's one thing that I can change. There's one thing that I have control over that's both autonomic and also controllable. And that's my, that's my breath. And that as I breathe in and I breathe out and I be in the moment that that prepares me to be a better husband, a better lover, a better brother and son and a better therapist. And so I, I would just have to say that my act of self-care every day is, is the one thing that I do that, that actually blesses other people. Yeah. yeah. It's the space, isn't it? It gives you, I mean, when you focus intently on your breath for a few minutes a day, even, You get that space between action and reaction that is so necessary in being a yeah. thoughtful human. Yeah. Nice to say. That's a really good pick. It really is rudimentary, isn't it? Yeah. Breathe. Just breathe. Yeah. I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight um, or today or this morning or in the middle of the night when you're listening to this driving truck across the highway. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming out. This is the Garland Pepper Show. This has been my really good friend, Brent Pace. Brent, we got to get together like at a, at a, at a closer level here soon. Absolutely. Um, I got to meet your husband and, and, and see you. You got to come on out to He'll Oregon too. sometime. Yeah. I might get out to Utah sometime. I'm not sure. But uh, I'd like to all th thank you all for showing up. Uh, Garland Pepper's moving. We're moving in the right direction. Y'all have been uh, listening and sharing. I want to thank you for that. Um, I also want to ask you if this is uh, your first time listening to the show and you've thought of somebody while you're listening to this show who may need to hear this show, uh, go ahead and uh, text them this or send it to them in Messenger. Uh, you can find uh, Garland Pepper on Google uh, Google Podcasts, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, you can find it on Spotify, uh, Breaker, there's a few others out there, um, or you can listen to it on Anchor. Uh, Y'all have a good day, and hey, thank, thank you very you, much. Gary. Appreciate thank you, the opportunity. Oh, I love this. This is a great show. Hey, thanks for listening. The first hour was fun. Now we got some more stories coming up, a little more depth coming to you. Enjoy the second hour with Brent Pace.
Hey y'all, just like to thank my friends over at Lucky Leaf for uh, supplying me with uh, good cannabis products. If you'd like to order online, go ahead and order online at The Lucky Leaf in Silverton, Oregon. like to thank you all for listening today please do share the garland pepper show with your friends text them if you thought of them while listening to this show message them if you like the messenger better garland pepper on apple google podcasts spotify breaker and many others have a great day